Something that we learn very early on is this phrase as humans, that's not fair. That's not fair. Now, if you've been around young children, you'll have heard that quite a bit. When, it, when we're younger, it can be about things that, in the grand scheme of things, aren't that serious, but at the time can seem very serious, like, that slice of cake is bigger than mine. That's not fair. Or, they've had more sweets than me. That's not fair. Or, I want to watch this on TV, not that. That's not fair. Or, I don't want to go to bed. It's not bedtime yet. That's not fair. You know, those kind of things. They can seem um, small now, but at the time they're huge. Because we know that we want things to be fair. But as we grow older, that's not fair turns into a more serious thing, doesn't it? Uh, Now it's things that break our hearts. And we can see things happening all around us in the world. And we can say, that's not fair. How could that happen? Maybe something has happened to you in your life, maybe recently, maybe a long time ago, and you just think, that's not fair. It's not right that that has happened. It's not okay. Maybe something has happened to somebody we love, and we just think, it's not fair. Maybe we watch something on the news, and we think, that's not right. Deep in our hearts, we've got that cry. It's not fair. It's not right. Perhaps we look at people in positions of power and how we see them misusing it and they use it for their own selfish gain. Maybe we see evil being done to people who um, are people who do evil and they seem to get away with it. Maybe we see bad things happening to those who don't seem to have done that much wrong and then people who've done a lot wrong, not bad things happening. We just think, what is going on? It's not fair, it's not right. You see, the Bible doesn't ignore those questions or those frustrations. And actually, the Bible helps us with that. And this strange passage that we've read this morning, maybe one that we might not have read before about Naboth, we see God dealing deeply with this question of relevance of, God, that's not fair. Or the way we're looking at it this morning is we've got a God of justice, a God who will put things right and make things right. So when we cry out, that's not fair, or God, that's not fair, What should we do? Four things for us to do this morning. The first is listen, then we need to fight, then we need to trust, then we need to flee. So we need to listen, fight, trust, and flee. So let's look at the first one. We need to listen. First thing is listen to injustice. You see this in verses 1 to 16 of the passage in 1 Kings. So it's probably been four or five years, we think, since we last saw Elijah. Remember last time he was really struggling? His job was to talk to God's people, to pass on God's word to God's people. And God's people didn't really want to hear from God because they were worshipping another God, other idols. And um, they had been led away by their king and queen, King Ahab and Jezebel. And Elijah had showed them really clearly on Mount Carmel that God was the real God because he called fire down from heaven and the fire came. And so everybody could see the God who sent the fire is the true God. And so Elijah was expecting this amazing revival to happen, for everybody to turn and, and say, God, you are the true God. But it didn't happen. And he ran away. He was exhausted. And he wanted God to take his life. He said, I've had enough. He was in a dark place, but God, we saw last time, showed who he was to him and helped him in his darkness. And he said, look, I am working, Elijah. It might not seem like it, but I am at work. Trust me. 
So now, for a bit of time, our attention turned to Ahab. And as I said, in chapter 20, Ahab's in battle, uh, but he makes a bit of a mess of it. You can read about that in chapter 20. But now, after this battle, Ahab is resting in his holiday home, uh, not in the south of France, but in Jezreel. He's got two palaces. Uh, one of them's in Jezreel. And he's sitting there uh, with his morning coffee outside, looking at his surroundings, and he looks and he sees next door's vineyard. It's Naboth's vineyard, and he was looking out and thinking, you know what? You know what would look good, really look good there? It's a nice vegetable patch. Oh, it says a, a, gar- a vegetable garden, but really what it's talking about there is, think more the hanging gardens of Babylon, that kind of thing, this very impressive garden. He's saying, that would look good there. It's the same word used as when uh, the Israelites are looking back to Egypt. Remember there, we had all these vegetables. So he's saying, look, I'd really like something impressive like that, and it would fit so well where that vineyard is. So what does Naboth do? He goes and says to, uh, sorry, what does Ahab do? He goes and says to Naboth, Naboth, I want your vineyard. Um, I'll give you a better one. Or I'll give you one, you know, just, just like that. And I'll give you money for it, whatever you want. But let me have the, the vineyard. And Naboth says, do you see that in verse three? The Lord forbid it that I give you the inheritance of my fathers. I can't give you this, Ahab, he says. Now, why? Why can Naboth say that? Well, this is why. Because Naboth actually here is obeying God's word. He is, um, just remember what, why God's people are where they are. They were slaves in Egypt. So they didn't have any land, they didn't have any homes, they had nothing. They were slaves. But God brought them out of Egypt and said, I'm going to give you all land. Each tribe, you're going to be allotted a special patch of land. And it's going to be yours to pass on through the generations to your children and your children's children. It's going to be your inheritance. And so when they arrived in the promised land, everybody was given their inheritance. And in Leviticus 25, it says, when, with this inheritance, you can't sell it. It's a gift from me. Pass it on to your children. Do not sell your inheritance, your land. Um, and Numbers 36 says, don't transfer it. You can't transfer it ownership to anybody else, except unless in um, very different circumstances. So here we're saying, Naboth isn't just saying, no, thank you, I don't fancy giving it to you. Or no, thank you. Um, I, I want to keep it to myself. He's saying, no, this is a gift from God to my family, and I'm keeping it for them. I'm obeying God. Ahab, I'm not giving you the vineyard. I'm passing it on to them. I'm trusting God, and my family have my inheritance. So what did Ahab do? Did he react and say, that's fine, Naboth. I understand you're being obedient to God's word. Well, no, he has a big strop, doesn't he? Or a sulk, or as we say in Wales, a pudi. He had a pudi. Verse 4. He said he was sullen, vexed, and he didn't. He ended up laying on his bed, turned his face away, and didn't want to eat. He had a big old strop. And um, Jezebel, his wife, is sitting downstairs. She's wanting to eat her chips, but they're getting cold, waiting for him to come. And she goes up and says, what are you doing, Ahab? Why are you having this sulk? What's going on? He said, well, I went I to Naboth's vineyard. And he said no. And Jezreel, in a moment, says, I'll sort it. Don't worry. I've got a plan. And in a few moments, she hatches this plan uh, to, and so she writes and signs from Ahab to the leaders of the, the area and said, look, what you need to do is have this meeting and, and frame, you need to frame Naboth to be guilty of blasphemy, be guilty of breaking God's law. And then if he's guilty of breaking God's law, we can take him outside the city and we can stone him. So that's what happens. They hatch that plan. And by verse 15, can you see what happens? By verse 15, he is, that's Naboth, is dead. And Jezebel says, 
you know, the, the vineyard's yours now. I've dealt with the problem. It's all yours. Now, as you hear that, I wonder how you feel. Here's this person in power coming to somebody who's not done anything wrong and they've just obliterated them. They've just pushed their own agenda. They've abused their position to get what they wanted. Now, what do we do when we say that, see that? Don't we cry out to that phrase we started with? It's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. This is unjust. Now, what do we do here? Well, the first heading is listen to the injustice. Just as a quick aside, um, the fact that this is so uncomfortable and feels wrong to us, we need to listen to for a moment. C.S. Lewis, who was the author of the Narnia books, was an atheist, and, um, and, and then he became a Christian. So what changed? How did he become, uh, go from not believing in God to believing in God? Well, one of the things was because he started thinking a lot about the suffering and injustice in the world. It's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes we think that thinking about suffering and injustice can push people away from God, but actually that was the thing that made him think more about God. Listen to what he said. He said, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe when I called it unjust? His point is this. He knew there was something wrong with the world, but he didn't know why he knew there was something wrong. See, if we push God out of the picture, the answer is, why are we here? Well, survival of the fittest. You know, if you're strong, you survive. If you're weak, you don't. And that's what, what, how we need to survive. You need to be stronger than the other person. And that's how we go. But, but no, C.S. Lewis say, no, that's not right. We know that's not right. It's not natural. We're different to that. And God has made us different. So he said, I, I know this world is crooked, but I have some idea in my heart of a straight line. I must, because I'm saying this is not fair. This is not right. So when we need to listen to injustice, because it's telling us that deep in our hearts, we know that there's a higher good a greater good. And it's not just a matter of the survival of the fittest. It's more than that. We are made in God's image, and every human being is equal. We are made with dignity, and we're to respect and care and love for one another. And when we go against that, then we say, no, that's not right. That's not fair. When the weak get crushed, we don't say, well, that's just nature. We say, no, that's not right. When, the, when the, uh, those who are in power um, abuse their power, we don't say, well, they're in a position of strength, so that's all it is. No, we say, no, it's not right, because we know we're all made in God's image. So let's listen to injustice. Instead of pushing God out, it actually helps us to think, this might make sense of why God is here, why, God, uh, why we can believe in God and trust in him. We're not an accident. We are made with dignity. So listen to injustice. But not only that, we need to see that just injustice in this world is going to happen. There are going to be times where things aren't fair. The Bible tells us time and time again that this world is broken. It is fallen. All around us we see signs of that, don't we? We see signs of, of this, this world just being, well, well, falling apart. Instead of loving God like we were made to and love others, we love ourselves and that love is curved in on itself and we put our needs before the needs of others. So what do we see with those in power? We see so often that power corrupts. And people use power for their own selfish gain. We see that in every area of life, don't we? And think of the news of the last five years where, where this has been really exposed. Whether it's Hollywood producers, MPs in Westminster or Cardiff, the police, even in the church, people use their position of power and abuse it. 
It doesn't mean there's no hope, but we need to recognize and remember where we are. We're in a world that's broken, in a world where we are fallen humans, we're sinners, and that goes through every sphere of life. So there will be injustice in this world. We don't give up hope, but there will be it. We need to face that. And the other thing here we need to listen to in this injustice is this. There will be injustice for those who believe in, in God. Notice here, Naboth is, is suffering because he said, I'm going to follow God's ways. Sorry, Ahab, I'm not listening to what you're saying. I'm following God's ways. You might think, well, why wasn't he looked after? If he put God first, how come he ended up stoned and killed? Well, the Bible tells us that if we stand for God and if we follow his ways, we're going to be going against the flow, going against the grain. You know what it's like if you're um, in the, in, I don't know if you know what it's like, but imagine you're swimming in a river and you're going with the flow. It's quite easy to go with the flow, but if you're going against it, it's hard work. The flow at the moment is we don't want to listen to God. We want to go our own way. We don't want to follow his ways. And so when we stand up and say, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to go with him, we will face pressure and opposition. Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you at its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See that in John 15. And then he goes on to say, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, they will also, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. See, look what they did to Jesus. Here was an innocent man, and he was killed, brutally killed, because he was standing up for his father. Look what they did to Christians throughout the history of the church. We see it time and time again. You read it in Acts, and you see it in the early church fathers. You see it throughout the history of the world. Christians, when they stand up for Jesus, face opposition. And we're not to be surprised by that. Jesus warns us of it time and time again. In some countries, even today, it's illegal for Christians to meet like this. The police would be coming in and saying, no, you can't do this. There are places where um, Christians get treated really badly just for following Jesus. So Eritrea is one example of many where um, the government, uh, the security will monitor phone calls of all Christians. Every activity that Christians do, they scrutinize. Uh, they will seize Christian materials and take it away. They will take loved ones and put them in jail without a fair trial just because they're Christians. Uh, they can be arrested and imprisoned without any trial, again, just because they're Christians. And some people don't even know where their family members are because they've been taken away. Why? Because they're following Jesus. They're no greater than their master. It happened to him. It'll happen to us. Now, in Wales, we don't face violent opposition, do we, for uh, what we believe. But we will face hostility. Maybe you know that in your life. You know, you, you, they know you trust in Jesus, and people are just against it. People don't like it. Family and friends not understanding, or when we hold on to the teachings of the Bible, we go against the flow. And it's hard. But Jesus is with us in it all. He's been there before us, and he says, I'm with you. Don't give up. So we shouldn't be surprised by injustice. We need to listen to it. It's telling us that God is real, and he's put that in our hearts. It's telling us that we're in a fallen world, and it's telling us that as believers we will face this opposition. It doesn't mean we give up, and we'll see that in a moment, but let's listen to this injustice. Listen to that cry of, it's not fair. The second thing we need to see is this, that we need to fight injustice. What do we do when we're in a cry out, it's not fair? We fight injustice. See this in verses 11 down to 14. How could the injustice that happened in Jezreel happen? 
Here's Jezebel. She wrote the letter to the leaders, and they just went along with it, didn't they? Where would it have been stopped, this an injustice, if the leaders would have stood up to the powers of the day, of, the day and the, of Ahab, and, and they'd have said, no, no, we're not doing this. This is unfair. This is unjust. But they didn't. They just went along with it. Now, obviously, if they would have stood up, no doubt their lives would have been taken away. Um, Jezebel and Ahab obviously took no um, prisoners. But the truth was, they were cowardly here. They went along with what wasn't fair and what wasn't right. And they feared the leaders of the day rather than God. And Matthew 10, Jesus says this, Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy soul and body in hell. Now, in a moment, we're going to see that God is a God of justice and how important that is. But all those who follow Jesus, we're called to live for justice. And we're called to point it out when there's injustice and unfair things happening. In Micah 6, God gives us this kind of um, manifesto for our life. Listen to what he says. He has told you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love steadfast love and walk humbly with your God? Do justice. What does that word justice mean? It means all people should be treated fairly. Everybody should get what they deserve. Now in the Bible it's clear that God is a God who wants that for all people. And the people mentioned with God's justice, look, make sure these people are treated fairly are those who are vulnerable. People like widows, orphans, the immigrants, and poor. People who are most vulnerable, people most likely to be exploited, we're called as followers of Jesus to point it out when, they are, when, that's been ha when that happens. And time and time again, we see God's heart and yearning for those who are vulnerable and needy. It's a bit like, um, you know, when you maybe... There's lots of different examples of this. If you have a new car, all of a sudden you realise other people who have the same car as you that you never noticed before. You know, when you have, um, I don't know, when you, when you have a dog, you notice other people who have a dog. I remember when Lisa was pregnant, you noticed all these people who were pregnant and they never noticed them before. You know, things like that, they stick with you. And you see, look, oh, if you read the Old Testament and think God is a God of justice, you'll see it everywhere. He looks out for the vulnerable, looks out for the needy, looks out for the poor. And a good question for us to ask is, are we, uh, how can we live that out as believers? How can we help um, and, do, and look out for the vulnerable and needy? Are there those around you in that situation who are in, in danger, of being, um, uh, danger of being treated unfairly? We're, we're called to, to do justice. What can you be doing personally? What can we be doing as a church? If you've got any ideas on thoughts on that, we need to share them because we need to be called to fight injustice. This is how C.H. Spurgeon put it. He was a preacher in the 19th century in London. He said, I would that we, uh, I would we who have a purer faith could remember a little more the intimate connection between body and soul. Go to the poor man and tell him of the bread of heaven, but first give him the bread of the earth. For how shall he hear you with a starving body? Talk to him of the robe of Jesus' righteousness but will you do it all the better when you've provided a garment with which he may cover his nakedness? It seems an idle tale to a poor man if you talk of him spiritual things but cruelly refuse to help him with his temporals. You see, if there's injustice and unfairness around us, we need to be those who fight that because we're representing God and his heart is for the needy and the vulnerable. So listen to injustice. When we have that cry of, it's not fair, listen, and we need to fight injustice. The third thing is this. We need to trust God's 
injustice. Verses 17 down to 24. So this injustice happens. We hear Naboth is, is killed and Ahab is there with the bulldozers in getting his garden and his vegetable patch ready. Now what happens next? Well, we're told that God sends his messenger, Elijah. He says, Elijah, I've got a job for you. You need to go to Samaria and you've got to confront Ahab. Look at verse 18. Arise, go down to meet King Ahab of King of Israel. You need to confront him with what he's done. See that in verses 17 to 19. Thus says the Lord, you say, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Now, Elijah goes and he confronts Ahab, the king, who could in a moment get him killed. He goes and he follows God's word. He boldly stands up to him. And God is saying, look, Naboth, uh, sorry, sorry, look, Ahab, I'm going to give you a punishment for what you've done. You were wanting to cut off, and you have cut off the inheritance of Naboth, Ahab. So I'm going to affect your inheritance. I'm going to cut off your inheritance. And here we see God standing up for the weak, standing up for the vulnerable. Somebody abuses their power, and God says, I'm going to stay, and I'm drawing alongside the weak and the powerless and the needy. And he see, God has seen it all. He's seen everything that's gone on, and Ahab is going to pay, because God is a God of justice. Now, can you see what that is showing us about God, just in those few verses? It's shown us, I think, two major things. One is it's shown us that God is just, and the other thing is shown us that God sees everything. It might have seemed like this was the perfect crime. You know, it was only planned in, the, in their bedroom when uh, Ahab was having his sulk. Je- Jezebel wrote those letters, uh, the deceit and the lies and then the murder. It all happened and nobody seemed to ask any questions. And at the end, Ahab got his vineyard that he was longing for. But God saw it. God saw the motives. God saw everything going on. And God was going to make sure that Ahab was going to pay for the wrong he did. See, no one is above the justice of God. There's no kind of space outside of his jurisdiction. He sees it all. It might look like nobody spoke for Naboth. It might look that nobody cared for him on one level. But then we see God, the God of heaven, stands up for him. He says, that's not fair, that's not right, and I'm a God of justice. Now, throughout the Bible, as we've thought, you know, God stands up for the oppressed and the needy. And this judgment was one that was coming um, soon to Ahab. He was going to see that soon. But it also points us forward to a day where everybody will face God's justice. Everybody will have to answer for our lives. Now, sometimes we don't like the thought of speaking of a God of judgment and justice. And maybe it would be nicer if we just skipped over chapter 21. Couldn't we just skip this bit of Elijah's life? But actually, when we think of God as a God of justice, there's deep comfort there. Perhaps in your life, something has happened and it is really dark. Something that is really hard. And no one else knows about it. But somebody has done something to you and it looks like they've got away with it. Maybe that person isn't here anymore, they've died. Or maybe just nobody knows and nobody would have guessed because of the way that person is living. But you see what this shows us? God saw it. And he knows. And that person will not get away with it. We don't like to think of God's judgment on one level, but can you see there is deep comfort because he has seen it all and it's fair. He will make people pay. Now, as we think of that, 
We need to breathe that in. We've got a God of justice. He's seen it. If that's you this morning. So people like Hitler, who killed himself in that bunker after killing six million Jews. He's not going to get away with it. People like Fred West, who killed himself in prison where it looked like he escaped justice. He's not going to get away with it. Or Jimmy Savile. Or other people who seem to have got away with it in this life. Many others who never even make the headlines. God has seen it, and people will pay. He's seen the lives that have been broken. He's seen the hurt that has happened. And his heart doesn't remain indifferent, but God cares. That's what God's judgment shows us. So if you're holding on to hurt or pain this morning because you think nobody else cares, nobody else has seen, this person's gotten away with it, look at the justice of God. He's seen and he knows and he's going to do something about it. Ultimately, we'll all have to stand there before God. Now, if you're holding on to bitterness, just remember what one wise person said. Bitterness is like drinking poison, expecting it to kill someone else. Bitterness will just eat us up inside and destroy us. But if we get the justice of God, we can let go and say, God, you can deal with it. I can't. It's over to you now. And be liberated from that. So God is just. And we need to hold on and trust God's justice. So when we have this cry of, God, that's not fair, we need to listen to injustice. We need to fight injustice. We need to trust God's justice. And the last thing is this. We need to flee to God for mercy. So we're talking about God's justice, thinking about how he sees everything and, uh, every, and he is just. There's deep comfort there, as we've just seen, isn't there? But also, I wonder if that makes you feel a little nervous. Here's a God who sees everything. He sees the hurt I've caused. He th- sees the things I've done that I'm not proud of. He sees it all, and he is saying, and we're going to have to pay for it. He's seen my rebellion. He's seen the things nobody else knows about. And if he's going to make me pay for that wrong, what hope is there for me? Well, this passage ends with a glimpse of God's mercy. Look at verses 27 to 29. When Ahab heard those words that he was going to face, you know, his family and him, he was going to face this judgment. Um, He tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. So here, Ahab humbles himself. And he realizes what he's done, at least a little. And God shows him mercy. He says, that thing I was going to do to you, it's going to be postponed. And it's going to be your family going to be affected by it. So it doesn't mean that there's no impact of what he's done wrong. There will be an impact. There will be consequences. But in this moment, God relents. Now, it might surprise us, after everything Ahab has done, you know, the most evil of kings, that God would show him mercy. How could he do that? But this is pointing us to the God we have, a God who has mercy and who doesn't work in the way we work because he's a God of mercy and grace and justice. So if today you feel full of shame and guilt about something you've done, and instead of bringing comfort, God's judgment actually brings a challenge, you think, hang on, I'm uncomfortable with that, I'm to face face him with what I've done, here's good news again. That the God, who is also the God of justice, is a God of mercy and a God of grace. 
And the Bible tells us he delights to show us mercy. So as you think of the story of where Jesus talks about the, the father whose son ran away from home, taking his inheritance with him, and he turns back because he realizes what he's done after years and years of spending all that money, what is the father doing? He's already gone out to meet him, already gone out to embrace him because he's longing for him to come home. God delights to show mercy, and when we turn back to him, we realize he's already running towards us. He's not waiting for us to you know, kind of show him uh, some kind of two, three weeks, four weeks of, of obedience before showing us mercy, but he says, no, I'll show it to you today. Turn to me now in your heart, and I'll show you mercy and grace. But here's a dilemma as we come to close. How can God be both just, that he must punish wrong, but also loving and merciful and able to forgive us? That kind of contradicts, doesn't it? How, how can he do that? Well, we just see Naboth here gives us and hints at the answer. Let me tell you Naboth's story again and see if this sounds like anybody else. Here is an innocent man. The leaders and authorities turned against him, and in a corrupt court, they found him guilty of blasphemy. And so they took him outside the city and killed him. Does that sound like anybody else? See, Naboth in this story is pointing us to a greater Naboth, to Jesus, the truly innocent one, the one who was found guilty even though he did nothing wrong and he was punished on the cross. But that wasn't an accident. Jesus wasn't like Naboth, caught up in some conspiracy against him. Jesus willingly did that. And the reason, reason he willingly did that is because he went to bear our punishment and the justice we deserve. For all the wrong we've done, Jesus says, I will take it and I will bear the judgment so you won't have to. I'll take the punishment so you can be innocent. You get what I deserve, I will take what you deserve. And Jesus, the greater Naboth here, says the punishment is paid. The judge is the one who kind of steps off the judgment seat, as it were, and says, I will take the punishment you deserve in your place. And that's how God can sort out this problem of justice and mercy how love and justice go together because the cross solves the problem. Jesus gets punished so we can go free. So today, whatever you've done and God has seen it all, God says to you, I want to forgive you. Look at my son, the Lord Jesus. He has taken the punishment you deserve. That's what you deserve, but I'll take it in your place. And you can be forgiven. And so one day, when we stand before God and he says, why should I accept you? We have one answer. Jesus. Not because of what I've done, not because of what I can do, but because Jesus has paid the price I deserve. See, the justice is satisfied on the cross. Here's a God who explains the injustice to us. Here's a God who upholds justice. And here's a God who is full of mercy. Today, maybe for the first time, do you need to come to him? Do you need to flee to him and say, God, I need you. I deserve punishment, but you're offering forgiveness and I need that. Turn to Jesus today, and he won't turn anyone away. Do that right now in your heart. Say, Jesus, I need you. And wonderfully, you'll know his forgiveness and a fresh start. And if you have known that, let's today rejoice that we've got a God of justice, the one who stepped into our world, willingly paid our punishment, took our judgment, so that we could be free and so that we could be forgiven. Let's pray together before we sing our last song.